It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. Well, to give Liz Truss a due, she did promise to hit the ground on day one. Coming up on the New European podcast, inside the government's self-inflicted crisis with the former Financial Times editor Lionel Barber. And because there's no recent evidence that I know of that radical changes can cause all sorts of trouble, two new co-hosts for this podcast in an exciting new format. I'll be joined this episode and each episode ahead uh, by my new European colleagues, Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Hello, Ellie. Hello, Matt. Hi, Steve. Hello there. And, of course, we will be putting more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers and uh, poisonous pundits into the Hall of Shame as we do. Before that, if you enjoy what we do at the New European, there's no better way to support us than by subscribing. And to make that decision easier for you, here is a fantastic offer for listeners of the New European podcast. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for £2 a week. For that, the print and digital package, £2 a week, you get unlimited digital access to everything in our archive, plus our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. Wow! To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, please subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And here we are on the TNE podcast. And uh, welcome back to uh, Ellie and Matt. As regular listeners uh, will know, uh, I'm a handsome and brilliant middle-aged man who enjoys politics and crime fiction and the works of uh, both Steely Dan and Throbbing Gristle. I'm a Renaissance man. Ellie, what should the listener? I mean, you, the listeners will be familiar from, with you from podcasts before, but what, what should the listeners know about you? Uh, well, I'm the one and only Gen Z journalist at The New European. Uh, I write about issues facing women and women's health. I'm Somerset born and bred, despite now living in London. And no, I won't give you the key to my brand new combine harvester. And Matt Withers, what about your combine harvester? Do you know what a combine harvester is? Um, I, I grew up in Cheshire and worked in North Wales for quite a long time. So, um, yeah, I know a little bit about the countryside, although, you know, obviously I live in East London now. Yes, rural East London. And uh, what else do the listeners need to know about you? 
Well, I'm a journalist, broadcaster, comedian of a sort, and a fan of cricket, pre-1995 video games, and all things German. Marvellous. Well, we'll be talking about some of that uh, and some of your work for the New European uh, in a short while. But first, uh, Liz Truss. It's been a good wait for Liz Truss. Uh, did a budget that went well, uh, went into hiding. That seemed to go OK, uh, then uh, came out of hiding, uh, did some radio interviews, probably going back into hiding now. She's got a big conference speech coming up next week. Ellie, what, what do you think she should do at the conference? I mean, you mentioned hiding, Steve. I'm just waiting for her to go and hide in a fridge, you know, like her her predecessor, yes. but we haven't quite got there yet. I know her speech. So I firstly imagine that she'll start by saying, thank you all for joining me in Bristol. If someone corrects her and says that they're actually in Birmingham, I imagine she'll just shake it off and say, oh, no, I haven't been to that site as she, as she did this morning on local radio. Um, Trust known for her historic speeches and, and great oratory. I think she'll then proceed to turn the mood of the country around using you know, her keen grasp of the English language and, and elements of persuasion. Um, oh, no, it's not even funny. Uh, I mean, so the port markets and the cheese and justice speech that she's that she's known for were really awful. But I remember saying a few weeks ago that perhaps off the cuff, maybe she'll be better just in some vague attempt to be trying to be optimistic about what sort of situation we're in, but clearly not, as we've seen this morning um because those silences on the radio were just I mean her answers were painful but it's the, the <laughs> long pauses between the the questions and the somewhat answers were even worse um so in terms of by the time we get to her speech they say a week is a long time in politics so I don't know I reckon we'll either hopefully need to see some sort of a u-turn um and turn around or she will just keep ramming home and peddling this story and this rhetoric that we have to remember the economic situation that the country was in and that she got dealt by you know 12 years of Tory governments but you know there we go. I mean the port market's pretty much the only markets that haven't turned on this trust so far but uh, there's what, still time. There is still time I mean I, I don't know when Quasi Kwarteng's big speech is, is scheduled for it's probably now scheduled for about midnight, isn't it? A time when all, all all the markets are in bed. Matt, what are you looking forward to from the um, the Tory conference? Oh well, firstly, uh, Steve, I don't accept the premise of your question, um, <laughs> and that what people really want to hear about is what this government's doing to protect people against the cost of living crisis around uh, fuel bills. This autumn and winter no I think uh, well I mean I'd love her to come out and then say I, I quit <laughs> well that's that's not gonna happen or, or possibly where is everybody given the amount of Tory MPs who are making clear that they won't actually be attending the conference um this weekend it seems to go up uh, by the hour if you see if you see Twitter um no I'm very interested to see the speech she gives she is uh, as noted a very poor speaker yes um she obviously had some training during the leadership election because she did um, improve during those debates, but it, it was all relative. And um, apparently uh, she really hasn't got her head around reading auto cues um, still. So whether she's going to attempt uh, an Ed Miliband style, you know, a, an hour learnt uh, by, by memory, I, I, I don't know. But I, I would anticipate her um, sticking to her guns as she's being urged to by her supporters in the, in the press. And what knows what that's going to do to markets. 
Yes, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know what she's going to do. I mean, she, if she comes dancing onto the stage to Dancing Queen, then I, I think we, we, we might all be uh, in trouble. Um, but anything she says and anything Quarteng says is going to be, I mean, it, who knows how the markets are going to react and, and what will happen from there. Um, let's let's turn to things that we we already do know about, though, and we'll we'll talk more about trust uh, later with Lionel Barber and then again with, with you two. Um, Ellie, this week in the New European, you, you're writing about another prime minister whose plans went awry. Who, who, which which one and, and why? I have, Steve. So I wrote about Boris Johnson or rather Kenneth Brannan's portrayal of him. So I, I reviewed Michael Winterbottom's This England, um, which is the six part dramatisation of the first wave of the COVID pandemic and Boris Johnson's and the government's handling of it. Um, I think I wrote in the piece that he's he's portrayed by Brannon and obviously written as this, this leader who's sort of got one foot in the past, both personally and politically. We see him hiding out next door in between meetings and in between sort of scenes with Carrie calling his children, all of which go to voicemail. Um, you sort of seen the same the same lines like, oh, Milo, it's dad, or Lara, it's dad, it would be great to see you and sort of nothing nothing happens. Um, and a lot of his political monologues often end up in quoting Shakespeare or speaking Latin or speaking Greek. And there's there's one very good scene, actually. I think it's the last episode where he's giving Cummings this sort of huge shakedown and sort of telling off because but it's also sort of dimmed because he just speaks in Greek for about two minutes. And Cummings just sort of goes, oh, I don't speak Greek. And Johnson was, well, I'm not going to translate it. And then he sort of storms out the room. Um but having said that, I, I have to admit, I did think the writing, it, it went slightly, ever so slightly easy on Johnson um, in, in his portrayal. You do not, it's not that you feel sympathy towards him at all, but it's, they could have gone a lot harder. Um, I'd argue that they went a lot harder on on people like Matt Hancock and Dominic Cummings. Hancock sort of in, in scenes, I think it's the first episode where things are starting to really erupt in Wuhan. He just sort of calls it, oh, this COVID thingy, we ought to keep an eye on it. And then sort of the meeting moves on. And Cummings is just, to be honest, portrayed as Cummings and arrogant and forgets any sort of Downing Street professional dress code, sort of hat and oversized sort of puffer gilet in tow. Um, But on that note, sort of policies and politics of Downing Street aside, watching it or re-watching it even, the earlier days of the pandemic, it is really quite bizarre to sort of sit and relive it all because obviously it's not the first drama based on real events that we've ever seen but I would say it's sort of one of the most recent ones to capture something that we all went through not just one particular community um it sort of captures all of our stories at once be it in in Downing Street or I don't know for example in York because there's bits early on where they talk about the first UK case and you know on a personal note for me the York parts and when it's filmed around York were particularly weird for me to watch because I was there at the time in my my fourth and final year of uni doing my degree and I remember at the time hearing rumors like oh there's people on Paragon Street or been seen around there in in hazmat suits and paramedics and this that and the other around the city and then I think I mentioned this in the piece this sort of anecdote that I remember being sat at the kitchen table at uni and one of these girls that I lived with that evening said, oh, yeah, I remember seeing them. Like, I thought they were with Drama Sock, doing some sort of apocalyptic, <laughs> weird assignment, I don't know, scene. And then watching that and thinking back to that story and that memory, it's just how, how very, very little we knew, both in terms of what was to come, but also what was going on behind the doors of number 10. It's 
yeah, it's very bizarre watching. And I mean, is it is it actually good? I, I've said. I mean, I've said. It's funny you you mentioned the the fact that it goes easy on Johnson. I've, I think I've, I've read some somebody complaining in the Guardian or the Independent that it went easy on Johnson. The Telegraph, I think, have said that it's the you know typical load of old lefty crap. Um, it, it, the portrayal of, of Johnson, I mean, the way Johnson looks, it's Kenneth Branagh in with prosthetics, isn't it? It looks even more frightening than Boris Johnson actually looks in real life. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think Branagh's portrayal is, is very good. So just to mention like the tone and the voice, if, for example, I don't know, if you just close your eyes and watch it almost, is very eerie and very apt. Um, the way he speaks and and the way... His tone comes across, but I, I do have to hold my hands up and say, similar to what you were just saying, is that I wasn't overly convinced by the physical portrayal at first. I had reservations almost about the makeup and the prosthetics that they'd gone, I don't know, almost ever so slightly overboard. Obviously, it's a, it is on real events, but then you have the sort of subjective element that you can kind of play with how you want to portray someone. But then weirdly, as the episodes went on, I became more convinced. I don't know if it's that you become used to the character but it is strange I can't apart from saying they just went ever so slightly overboard on the prosthetics I can't quite put my finger on what didn't quite sit right but then I then again what I was saying earlier I do think part of it is an element that where you have a dramatization that's so recent in everyone's memory it's almost held to a higher standard that you know if it's not spot on or like oh I wouldn't have done him like that because you know we all remember what Boris Johnson was like in number 10 and you know it's so so close to home and interestingly that's exactly what he and as in Kenneth Brannan and Winterbottom have been saying this week in interviews that it is very hard to write and then to play someone so ingrained and so prominent in the public memory um but no I do think his his portrayal is is very very good I think like you say you mentioned the prosthetics and the makeup maybe it's partly that his character was one of the ones or the one that used that element of like costume in in the show the most so you pick up on it more um but no I do think it is it's good and I'd say it's definitely worth a watch just I'd say it with the caveat of potentially brace yourself because it's not exactly light watching no um Matt are you going to be watching this I probably will I'll be honest I watch very little TV if there's a big show of recent years and you ask me if I've seen it be that Game of Thrones or Succession or Breaking Bad the answer will always be no um I've got a real blank spot where TV is concerned but I was going to watch this last night what do you do instead rather other than watching TV I'm I like to read I like to read Steve honestly um, I was going to watch this though, and then I looked at the planner and saw that the first one was an hour and twenty-five minutes, and I just Ooh. can't, I can't commit to that. I thought I presumed they were going to be uh, an hour each, but I, I am curious and very interesting what Ellie's got to say. I, I read the um, embargo busting review in the the Mail on Sunday at the weekend, uh, which was uh, attacked this very, very much for, for very strange reasons. At one point, the the, the reviewer uh, said that Michael Winterbottom known to be close to Steve Coogan, as if that was uh, in any way relevant to uh, to, to the, the show at hand. There's a lot of talk about being filmed through a left-leaning focus and all and all that kind of stuff. But I, it, there's been so much written about it. I, I, I'm curious, and I probably will find some time the, the, the weekend. What I'm interested in, um, Ellie, obviously there's a lot of 
then the main focus is the reaction to COVID. And we know that a, a lot of that, there are materials to draw on. Dominic Cummings' lengthy newsletters. Um, I think people like Tim Shipman, who, who were close to a lot of people involved, um, have advised the show. But then there are other things, apparently, like like you mentioned, the, the call, the unreturned calls to um, his children, and uh, the, the pet names apparently we get between uh, Boris and, and Carrie Johnson, things that really the writers haven't got a clue what happened there. The number of people who know what actually happened around their personal lives is, is, is very, very small. Does that sit easily with the, the more central narrative about handling COVID? That's actually a really good point. Um, I think I remember mentioning to you guys earlier in the week that there's some bits of it that I don't know it's it's almost there to make a laugh, but there are some bits that you just would rather be better left to the imagination. I.e., there's a scene where you know Johnson's riding on a bit of a high. He's just won the election, so it's you know very. It's in the first episode, very early on, and you can hear him and Carrie behind a bedroom door. Thank goodness the camera doesn't go into the bedroom. Um, and he Carrie's giggling away. And Boris is sort of I know almost sounds a bit drunk, whether it's drunk on power or just drunk, who knows? Um, but sort of chortling away that, oh, you know, come on, Paris and aphrodisiac. And it's like, oh no, I didn't want to know that. And there's another scene where um it's after, you know, they've had their they've had their baby and Carrie's saying, sorry, no, Johnson's saying, you know, I thought about the point of having a younger girlfriend is you get quite a lot of sex and then Carrie's just saying oh no yes but you get a baby as well sort of pointing at the buggy and he's like oh yeah of course yeah I forgot about that and it's just but like you say like you know there's only the two of them whether it even happened but in things like that there's the it's a moment between the two of them so how you know the writers can possibly have known if x or y was said or whatever but in terms of whether that sits with the much more heavy hitting political retrograde policies and covid and the handling of the pandemic it's I have to admit it is because it's almost written as part of a bigger thing where Johnson was absent and he missed X meeting. So in order to be absent, you have to see what he was doing. And I think I write this in my piece that he's almost putting or portrayed as putting more effort into his new relationship with Carrie than his sort of new status as like coming out of this election and running the country and this that, and the other. And so it almost works to to play into his absence at the at the beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic so no to be fair I think bits of it it's almost shot in a documentary style so you have the stamps at the bottom saying um I don't know Downing Street x date and Wuhan this date and Italy and whatever so it does all fit into into a puzzle sort of quite nicely how is the uh how is Carrie the portrayal of Carrie Simons Carrie Carrie Johnson I noticed that the the that the actor's name is is Ophelia Lovey Bond which is um which is a tremendous thing to uh, a tremendous thing to, to go under right up there with honeysuckle weeks and Tuppence Middleton, I think. It's a great uh, name, yeah. Yeah. How is um, how is how is Ophelia Lovey Bond? I'm actually a, a big fan of Ophelia Lovey Bond. I I I first um she did this series, it's sort of an American spin-off of Sherlock a few years ago, more than a few years ago now, but um where you've got Johnny Lee Miller playing Sherlock and he's sort of running around oh, New York. Lucy Lou. Yeah, I know exactly. And she she's in, I think she starts in the second or third series and she plays sort of a protege of Sherlock with a very, you know, typical of a crime drama with a very dark and complex backstory. Um, but no, she is, she's exceptional in that. And I do think her portrayal of Carrie in this is very good. Um, again, talking about costume and makeup, I feel like they've made her look, you know, certainly look the part. Um, but no, I do think Ophelia Lovey Bond 
is very very well cast in this and I do think she's a great actress um yeah no she's great part of the problem with it I think is 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 as you as you have said it's all these people are all so familiar to us we know what they're like whereas it whereas with the the, the thing that is the thing that's comparable and recent is is the Benedict Cumberbatch thing, the the Brexit, the uncivil war. When of course we none of us really knew what what Dominic Cummings was like at that stage. We didn't know he was a sort of weaselly uh, psychopath. We could be persuaded that he was actually this sort of brooding uh, intellectual psychopath um, from from the. Sometimes he was from the northeast, sometimes from the home counties. Um, but I think that is probably one of the problems with it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned actually Brexit, the uncivil war. I I watched that in, in protest because my brother wanted me to watch it. And I was re- re- I think I've written about this in the past for, for the New European. It really sat very uneasily with me in a different this far more so than than this England did. Um, I think just for no other reason, I found it really desperately quite sad that, that to relive that. But it's it's you know, you have the scenes with the focus groups where they all just erupt and it gets really nasty. Mm. And the scene between, um, you know, Cummings and uh, I've now forgotten his name, which is awful, but where they're in the pub and they're talking about, you know, this is my children's futures yes. that we're that we're mucking around with. It's not just something about winning a campaign on on three word slogans and things like this. And it's which is another thing that does come up in this England about they um so it goes from like get Brexit done to all the three words thing, the campaigns that you have going through COVID and there's scenes of them saying, now we need three words. Like, what about four? No, it can't be four. It has to be three. Um, but no, so yeah, the um, Brexit, the uncivil war sat very uneasily with me, but in a different way than this England did. But it's like you say, you know, you know what they did in terms of policies and you know how they appeared in interviews, but in behind closed doors, you have, I guess it's the element of just taking subjective and creative licensing with it. Now, I mean, Brexit, obviously a European disaster story. Matt, for, for the new European, uh, you were been writing about a European success story, one that's it's becoming inescapable on, on British high streets. Uh, it's the German Donner Kebab. What have, you, what have you learned about the German Donner Kebab? And is this what you're doing? When you're pretending to be reading, are you secretly out eating German Donner Kebabs at all hours of the day and night? Um, I mean, I make no secret of my my love of um, German German doner kebab. Um, and if people want to read my my piece on it, they'll be able to subscribe uh, and and find it online. Yeah, I I think I've never had such a positive reaction to something I brought up in a, a TNE pitch meeting to saying I wanted to write <laughs> about kebabs, but. I noticed that they are becoming ubiquitous, um, German Donner Kebab. It's it's this chain of kind of quite um, pretty healthy, you know, these are not kebabs that you'd have after 10 pints, you know, on a a Friday night, Um, made much more in the in the German style with quality grilled meat served in bread rather than rather than wraps. And they they have almost taken over high streets out of nowhere, really, in the past four to five years. And I was interested in how that came about, how they built up um, so quickly, um, how they've managed to tap into that that Gen Z market, which um, you know ordinarily uh, wouldn't wouldn't touch this sort of thing. I'm sure um, Ellie's not a regular kebab eater. We can we can come on to that. But actually, once I delved into that, I I found that I wanted to write a wider 
piece about the history of the kebab within Europe, which is actually really interesting um, from the origins of it, which is is much disputed. There's a, a the story has always been that it was effectively invented by um, an operator of a West Berlin snack food stand who emigrated from Turkey to uh, West Germany in 1960 and how in the early 1970s he invented this. Then when I actually spoke to kebab experts and, and and they do they do exist I, I spoke to a lecturer in geography and geopolitics um at an international relations school in paris who's done a lot of work around this he said that actually you know there's evidence from the mid-18th century in the ottoman cities the donna kebab if not called that could be found in the streets i spoke to the founder of the kebab alliance in in the uk who promotes the the british kebab awards who you know acknowledges that west berlin story but actually also thinks of the pictures from as early as 1400, 1500, depicting what looked like a, a doner kebab. And then I found I was delving more into the political angle of it, which you might think sounds a little bit silly, the politics of the kebab, but in Germany, for example, it's been embraced as a symbol of successful cultural integration. Uh, and in other places, it's been seen as an example of creeping Islamization. And you've got various examples of mayors in different towns and cities across Europe who've tried to ban further kebab restaurants um, for, for various reasons. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really just generally interesting story. I really like the, 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 the idea that it took hold in Britain in, well, it took hold in Britain in sort of 95, 96, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, yeah. why, why was that? Well, you, you might think it's because it kind of fitted in with that whole Britpop kind of, um, you know, ladette thing. And it's something that perhaps Zoe Ball and Sarah Cox would have had after, you know, having having eight pints of cider and being uh, pitching in the next day's sun. Actually, it was more of an economic thing. And a lot of it came from where I'm currently sat now, which is Hackney in East London, where the, the textiles trade effectively collapsed um, around this area in about 94, 95. And that was predominantly staffed by um, Turks and specifically Kurds. Um, and they had to find something else to do economically. Um, and they, at that time, a, a lot of this community couldn't speak um, English. It was difficult to find jobs in, in the, the more general economy. So they took what they knew, which was um, the gastronomy of their particular region of Turkey, and they started opening up places to sell it, um, initially only to their own community. Um, but it soon it soon took off, uh, and by the, the the late 1990s, it became part of that stable. You know, it was it was the the post pub meal of choice for um, people after a, a, a night out on on the beers. Um, and now that's actually changing. And we come back to how we started on German Donner Kebab on how people like the Kebab Alliance have been desperately using things like the awards to try and um, get away from that that reputation that it had and, and making it con considered more of a, 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 a normal a normal meal that one would have. And then you've got something like German Donner Kebab, which you, you wander into one of their branches now. Um, and it will be, you know, it will be young people, considerably younger than, than me, who might have it after going to the gym, because these are pretty healthy meals, actually. Good Lord. Ellie, I think I know the answer to this one. Are you a, are you a fan of the Donner Kebab? I don't know what you're inferring by you know the answer to that question before I've before I've answered it. But no, sorry, to whether I um, confirm your suspicions, I'm not the biggest fan of of a doner kebab. In fact, I could probably go as far as say I don't think I've ever had a doner kebab. My go-to on a uni night out. I know we've discussed that they have they have various uses, but my my go-to on a uni night out was the good old Yorkshire cheesy chips with gravy. Um, 
But Matt, it's interesting. Since you wrote this piece, I do actually keep noticing that they are everywhere. There's one literally just up the road from me, which I hadn't noticed, but that probably says more about my eyesight than um, than than anything else. But what I'm interested in is in terms of, so sadly, we've obviously now got the state of the economy and the cost of living crisis. And even, you know, hospitals before this, hospitality being hit by COVID and food businesses being hit by COVID. Do you think, I'm just interested in terms of how that will affect, you know, German doner kebab. And if if in your interviews, if they said, anything about that or anything about rising costs and obviously they're sort of more of a chain than a than a restaurant I suppose but but yeah what are your thoughts on that I think um German German dollar kebab in particular because the prices are are pretty low you know it's it's a it's a little bit more expensive than your standard um fast you know it's not like McDonald's we can go and get a well, it used to be a 99p cheeseburger. I think they've, they've gone up in, in, in recent weeks, but you, you pay a little bit a little bit more, but I think broadly they will be fine. Actually, um, and uh, new European listeners probably won't be surprised that it, it's come to this. When I went to meet uh, Ibrahim Dogus, the founder of the Kebab Alliance at his, his restaurant on London's South Bank, um, the, the issue for him um, and, and the, the trade more widely has been Brexit. Um, he, he said that they... The, the industry in the UK is really still struggling with staff, particularly front of house staff, which even though this food originates largely from Turkey, particularly Kurdistan, but you know, an, an element of Greece as well, um, that their staff were overwhelmingly from the EU and that a lot of these people left um, as a combination of Brexit and the pandemic and haven't come back. And, and they are, as an industry, still finding it very, very difficult to attract people back into it. So, so I suspect that that's going to become even more difficult um, with the impact of the cost of living crisis over the coming months, probably years. But yeah, he, he was absolutely explicit um, with me that Brexit had been the issue. And in fact, um, there was a period when there was an anti-Brexit message on the receipts which customers <laughs> would get at his restaurant. And, and you know, some people... Uh, said that they were boycotting it as a result of that, but um, I, I expect that those numbers were low. But yeah, that has been a huge issue for for the kebab uh, and wider restaurant industry over the past couple of years. Well, there we go. Um, now, I mean, thankfully, you know, Liz Truss and, and Quasi Quarteg have got a cunning plan to put Britain back into growth, and so none of that will even matter anymore. So. So uh, you can read about uh, the German Donner Kebab. You can read uh, Ellie's review of This England uh, on our website or by subscribing the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast for, for a great deal on that. But let's turn now to this week's interview, uh, which is about Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng and the uh, rather calm reaction to their mini budget. Lionel Barber, the new European writer who was the editor of the Financial Times between uh, 2005 and 2020, has written an extraordinary piece for us in issue 310 of the New European taking aim at the reckless actions of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister uh, in the mini-budget that took Britain's finances to the brink. Lionel, thanks for joining the New European Podcast. Just, I mean, put this in context for people who've not been the editor of the Financial Times before. How does this compare to the, the other seismic shocks that we've seen to the British economy uh, in the past? Well, I can remember Black Wednesday when a government uh, decided to try to fight it out against the markets 
against a backdrop of rising interest rates and trying to hold a fixed exchange rate against um, uh, for the pound, and it just didn't work, and they they caved. In that sense, there is a, a similarity today where the the new government, uh, led by Liz Trust, is trying to basically buck the market, saying they are wrong about uh, the uh, impact of tax cuts, and they're wrong to question our credibility. In terms of seriousness, I think what happened earlier this week, a meltdown uh, in the gilts market, in the bond, government bond market, was very serious. And that's why the Bank of England had to intervene. Yeah, I mean, are there are there more aftershocks to come from the markets? Do you think? I mean, we, I mean Truss and Quateng have both got to make what I'm guessing are fairly weighty, lengthy speeches at the Tory conference next week, and it does seem that every time they open their mouths, the market reacts in a, in a negative way. I think there are shocks to come. You can never predict exactly uh, how markets work um, on a sort of hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis. But as long as there is what might call a credibility gap, uh, and that certainly exists, and as long as the government isn't giving a clear sense of direction and how the numbers add up, to use the words of Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor, then you're going to see uh, both a sell-offs and wild gyrations. It's worth also pointing out, Steve, that the value of the pound against the dollar has steadily declined since Brexit. I mean, it was around 150. It's now around 105. I mean, that direction has been one way. Yes, that's right. Thank goodness neither of us are in uh, Brooklyn at the moment, Lama. Oh, sorry, you are in Brooklyn at the moment. Uh, Just uh, put my hand in my pocket and there's a large hole, Steve. <laughs> the, the piece that you've written for us, I mean, which, which, you, which you wrote before, you know, Mark Carney got involved, the IMF got involved, the Bank of England got involved, Liz Truss... Uh, got involved on local radio, which didn't go too well for... I mean, it be, your piece begins with the words, Quasi Quarteng was always a high-risk appointment uh, as Chancellor of the Exchequer. What, why, why was he always a high-risk appointment? And, and why was Trust so desperate to have him? Well, Liz Trust has always been close to Quasi Quarteng and has chosen her cabinet, not according to competence, um, but uh, by uh, loyalty, and that's always dangerous. Kwarteng himself is not an economist. Uh, he is a, an economic historian. He's written a, about, actually, the debasement of the coinage, I believe, around the <laughs> late uh, 17th century. Very relevant, of course, today. Um, but I've also, there are some questions about his work habits. He's also got a little bit of that. Can we say this, Steve, on this? it's a, I know it's a family... Uh, listening here, but a bit of the public school swagger. Uh, and, you know, it's I know best. Mm. And of course, he's been proven badly wrong here. Yes, he has. And, and, uh, and uh, of course, there, there was a report this week, wasn't there? Somebody reminded, reminded us of, of running into Quasi Kwarteng on, on, the, on Brexit night, on referendum night, when he was rejoicing and saying, don't worry about the pound, it'll always come back, um, which has uh, proven not to be the case. I mean, what, what they want to do is radical. They're, they're, their idea is a radical one, isn't it? All right, it's from IEA and think tanks like that. But they are radical ideas. Could they have done all of this in a way that didn't open up 
uh, this kind of reaction from the markets? And, and then does that dream of tax cutting to produce strong growth that trickles down, does that ever work anyway? Well, first of all, I honestly do believe that uh, they could have produced a package last Friday, uh, and I thought at the time, that did not uh, trigger this kind of violent negative reaction in the markets. Mm. And the way they could have done that is say, one, we've got a generous, a very generous energy package. Uh, two, we are going to reverse the planned tax increases which Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, said, and that was both on corporation tax and national insurance surcharge. And that those were two taxes which you could argue were not necessary given that the, the, the economy is slowing down. The problem was the unfunded promise mm. of tax cuts at the upper end and then made worse by Kwarteng said, and there's more to come. And there was no... Uh, sense of what's the broader fiscal framework. It was just nothing. It was a bunch of promises. So this was the most important reason why you've got this reaction. Now, the, the, the other sort of broader philosophical question is do tax cuts um, generate growth, the trickle-down economics, um, the kind of thing that we used to hear about in America with Reagan? And I think there the jury is def definitely out. I mean, the, the it's it's there's a very good piece by the former, uh, the director of the London School of Economics in the Financial Times just now, which is saying she worked at the World Bank, Minouche Shafiq, many years and said, we used to do all these studies about productivity, uh, how to generate growth. Tax cuts never were on the agenda. Yeah. I mean, the, the, some of the, 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 you know, the hundreds of billions that people like the IEA are still talking about seems, I mean, it seems like a, 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 a punt to me. Um. How much of well, well, especially Steve, if you, those promises then generate interest rate rises, yeah. which hits the housing market, which then uh, you you negate all the impact of of what you were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, they started off by sacking, or Quateng started off by sacking Tom Scholar, who was the, the top civil servant at the Treasury. Why was that such a mistake? Did that really that really freak the markets out? I'm guessing. Well, it was a bad sign. I I think the markets sort of said, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? I mean, you will be familiar in the middle of the Brexit campaign that famous comment by Michael Gove said, "Well, we've had enough of the experts." Mm. And Tom Scholar, Sir Tom Scholar, the top civil servant at the Treasury had massive experience. He was there during the global financial crisis, the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, um, where you really were in a war. And he, he was a seriously experienced and safe pair of hands. And so sacking him clearly to me, I, I mean, at that moment, Steve, of course, I don't do this because I don't bet in the markets, but I would have been shorting the pound, uh, selling off the pound, the moment I saw Tom Scholar kicked out because it was clear they didn't want to listen to independent advice. I mean, the, the, one of the lessons of the last six years is, is the idea that, you know, ideology untempered by reality and pragmatism does a lot of damage. Is, is, that a, is this just another example of that? I think it is uh, extreme ideology. Uh, it's the view that we know best and actually... Facts don't matter. 
we have our alternative facts. You have your facts. I have my facts. And you know what? We don't care about the counter-argument. We're right. It's that kind of absolutism, which is uh, new and dangerous. Yes, it is. And I mean, a lot of those ideologues still say, don't worry, be happy. You know, the government's plan is the right plan. We're all going to feel, you're all going to feel very silly in a a few months uh, when this all trickles through. Just, I mean, just give me some reaction to these things. John Redwood said the Bank of England should not respond to every speculative excess in currency markets uh, at a time when the euro and the yen uh, have also been hit. Their forecasts show inflation tumbling there's no need to hike interest rates. Lord Ashcroft said it's, this is partly a reaction of the markets to the concern that Labour could form the next government. Chris Philp, who was doing the rounds uh, on Thursday morning, said it was to do with Putin's illegal war in Ukraine, said the Bank of Japan have intervened too, said the USA have got higher interest rates than we do. What's the truth of all of that? Well, the problem here is that these are both Uh, distractions, half-truths or quarter-truths at best. They're not answering the central issue. So if you take them very quickly, uh, the fact is the pound has dropped not just against the dollar, but also the euro. Uh, It's true that the yen has declined against the dollar and the Bank of Japan did intervene, but that it's not of a comparative fall to, to say sterling. The second point, which is much more serious, is that they're attacking the wrong issue. The issue is government borrowing and the interest paid on government debt. None of those people are addressing that issue. The debt is high and it's index linked to inflation and it's moved very sharply, both at the short end, which is one two-year debt, and the 10-year end. And that's why the Bank of England had to intervene. Now, the other issue is... uh, should interest rates rise? I mean, come on. This is Britain is not some kind of country, Ruritania, divorced from reality. You don't, you're completely unlinked to the rest of the economy. The Bank of England was always going to have to raise interest rate alongside because the Fed's moving much further and faster. And and you can't say we have to ignore that. So I'm afraid Mr. Redwood, uh, Mr. Philip, and the others are need to go back to economics class, probably, by the way, second grade, not third, first, uh, fourth grade. <laughs> um, how much of this is, is, is down to, to trust then? I mean, it, it is, it is Black, Black Wednesday-ish, isn't it? In that it's, you know, that came very soon into the, the major administration and, and, and it coloured the next five years. She's only got two years. Well, actually, Steve, with major, it was two years before Black Wednesday. So, oh, it was, uh, that's right. yeah, he, they came in 1990. He came in in 1990. There was the election. Uh, it's true. The election was in 92. And yes, then right. a few months later, you had Black Wednesday. With this uh, present government, they've got about two years left. And their economic credibility has gone up in smoke in a week. And of course, it comes down to Liz Truss. She is the prime minister. And because I'm in Brooklyn in America, I'm going to give you the old pottery barn motto. Um, You break it, you own it. And that applies to crockery and it applies to an economic policy. She's the one in charge. She picked Kwasi Kwarteng and she's got to own this. The issue for me 
and I think for everyone they're watching is, are they going to back down and defer the tax cuts? I would say cut your losses and do that. Yeah, because I mean, their, their idea that their sort of the crisis, don't what crisis idea is that they are want to sit tight and get to November the 23rd and then they will unveil this incredible plan to reverse the rise in national debt. Are, are they going to be able to get to November the 23rd? No, no. I don't believe so. I, I, I that uh, November the 23rd, in terms of the way markets move. I, I mean, it, it's like 2025. You don't have that time. The markets are moving much faster. And the people that I'm talking to are saying the longer you wait, the higher the cost. But these are very stubborn people. So it wouldn't surprise me if she tries to hang on a few more days. Issue, of course, the other question, Steve, is whether Kwarteng can survive. And so it's not just about the nerve inside Downing Street, where, by the way, they're clearly nobody adult uh, enough to understand the gravity of the crisis. They're all in denial. The issue is then inside the cabinet and more important inside the Conservative Party, whether their nerves fray first and they may just say we want Kwasi Kwarteng's head. Yes. That's right. Um, before we, we, we leave you to go and panhandle on the streets of, of Brooklyn and for the Can You Spare a Dime and all of that outside Peter Luger's, what, what do you think, what should they say? I mean, never mind what, what will they say. No, what should they say in, at the Tory conference in the days before that to just dig themselves out of this hole, give themselves a bit of breathing room? I think they should stick to the core of the Friday statement. And by the way, you and I are going to disagree on this because um, I've got a bit of deregulatory uh, spirit inside me. Uh, it's about 12, 14 degrees. I know you can't take that. You're more at sort of eight, nine percent. Um, but I think what they were saying about uh, deregulation, correct. They, they need to do much more on which we haven't talked about, but is very serious, the productivity problem mm. in the British economy. And they should stick to that. They can get away with not uh, introducing the corporation tax increase or national insurance. I think they could keep stay with the course, but they've got to defer the tax cuts for the rich. Um, and they've got to then produce, very say very clearly, we're going to produce a, a fiscal framework. Because by the way, they've said nothing about the squeeze on public finances or the way people are going to get hurt with public spending cuts to pay for this. So the markets, in other words, they need to answer some very fundamental questions and restore a sense of direction. Uh, by the last point, I got a text from a, a, an old cabinet minister this morning uh, in the Conservative Party who said, you know, very depressing. It's as bleak as anything because, you know, years of hard work, sensible economic policy, uh, again, you might disagree with this, but where the Conservatives have had an, an independent Office of Budget responsibility, which is there to keep irresponsible chancellors like Kwasi Kwarteng in check because it's a, sec it's a form of independent advice. All this has gone overboard um, in the first week of this government. It's appalling. Wow. Wow. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Lionel Barber. It's very good to be with you, Steve. I'll, I'll bring back a dollar note when I get back to London. Please do. We could all look at it in wonder. <laughs>
Uh, to read Lionel Barber on the gamble that went wrong, pick up issue 310 of the New European uh, at News Agents Now. Subscribe and you will get access to all Lionel Barber's pieces for the New European for our special deal for podcast listeners. Subscribe at the new european.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, Matt Withers, what stood out for you in, in Lionel's piece and, and from what he was saying there? Yeah, it's a really it's good entry. It's a really good piece by Lionel in in the paper and on online this week. And I, I will always bow down. Um, I'm not uh, an economist. I'm not from that background. So um, I, I will bow down to what Lionel Barber is a much cleverer man than me ha, has to say. Um, but I think it's very interesting that he talks about how ideology really trumps um, uh, economics uh, over all this. You know, you've got a prime minister, the chancellor, who are deeply, deeply ideological. Um, and who really, really believe in this uh, uh, above all else. I think there's two interesting things come out of that. Uh, firstly, this is not normal conservative policy in any way whatsoever. You know, the uh, I think you're, you might mention later that the, the Daily Mail absolutely loved this budget, splashing, you know, finally yeah. a true Tory budget. Yep. And it really isn't. Um, in the same way as Jeremy Corbyn's supporters talked about how, you know, they got their party back, that finally this was a proper Labour Party. Well, no, it wasn't. You know, they, as people always say, the Labour Party always, you know, um, owed more to Methodism than Marxism. It was never a hard left party. Similarly, the Conservative Party has never been a kind of Ayn Rand, pure um, free market driven um, economic party. You know, it's it's a party of John Major and, and, and Ken Clark. This is a complete aberration and a split with everything that come before really um it, it is just not conservative policy and when people say that margaret thatcher would have loved this well it's ken clark who said she would never have touched this you know this goes far beyond the the, the big bang um, and the second point i'd say on the ideology of it this pair are behaving like a government that has just won an enormous majority at a general election and, and they haven't She's crept in an internal party leadership um, election where she won by no, you know, nothing like as big a majority as was being briefed beforehand. Um, I think the number of MPs who backed her in the first um, round was, you know, in the in the double figures. I think it's about around fifty. So she's not got the support of her MPs, um, and yet they are behaving like. Tony Blair was in 1997, which is taking a huge majority on and saying, look, I, I now have been given this mandate by the country to, to pursue radical um, economic and, and social reforms. Um, and yet this pair are, are doing it and seem perfectly happy doing so. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true, isn't it? And, uh, uh, you know, the, she, she doesn't have much of a mandate. None of this is in the Conservative Party manifesto that people voted for in 2019. Um, and, uh, you know, while the Conservatives still have a, a large majority, OK, it's been whittled down by a, a little bit, but it's still probably, what is it, still probably 76 or 74. Um, let, well, let's see. Let's see what the, the kind of majority uh, is when they uh, when Labour table amendments on stuff like the 45p uh, rate of tax going uh, and stuff like that. Um, it would be very interesting. Ellie, what are your thoughts on on what Lionel said and wrote and, and what happens next? WWTD, what will trust do? My new my new favorite yes. abbreviation. Incidentally, what's next was my 
my favorite catchphrase from the West Wing, which is the greatest show ever to grace us up. Just saying, but it now never seen it. I I, I have, I have seen the West Wing. (laughs) Not, not busy reading. (laughs) No, but it, I don't know. Just saying that now just feels a bit more desperate than hopeful. More of a like, oh, what's next? Um, But going off what Lionel says, it is as Matt was saying, an amazing, amazing insight and amazing piece for us. But he was saying how sort of trust acts, you know, by nature, she's trying to act a bit more on instinct, whether that instinct is is right or not. is completely another matter, um, as we've seen this week. I do, in terms of what happens next, m- more than why hope happens next, is that some either her instinct by some divine intervention will kick in in terms of doing the right thing and realizes that just we cannot go on like this. And also what I think is interesting is not obviously logistically and what's happening with the economy but also in terms of like an international perspective and global perspective on how we are being viewed on the world stage this week in terms of headlines from the US to other European countries and things like how CNN has been covering this is just appalling we are a global laughing stock it's really not good at all I'm a huge fan of Trevor Noah and the Daily Show and the the segment he did on it this week was where he was basically just saying you know he did a segment on on trust and the pound and what's happened he was saying like basically can we just all accept that the people we put our trust in to know and do the right thing genuinely have no idea what they are doing and this is coming from just you know a talk show host and it's just awful and he goes on to say you know that their their approach to the economy is basically like how we all play you know video games when we were kids just close your eyes tap all the buttons and hope for a fatality or that something good happens and it's really funny and it would be more funny if it's not desperately true um so i hope it doesn't go on like that and that we don't continue to be a laughing stock across the pond and in other countries um also maybe hire a new comms team would also be a good start i think and also just maybe someone to speak for her in all form of public engagement so we don't have to keep suffering these horrendously long pauses yes i mean it's all been a disaster hasn't it uh which seems like a really good time to open the creaking door of the hall of shame where we put the malignant ministers bogus benches poisonous pundits uh, putrid prime ministers i guess all the things that annoy us um i'm gonna start uh, the hall of shame and then you 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 can join in uh, i mean i will start as as we always do with Anne widdicombe uh former tory prisons minister former brexit party mep still the author of the world's worst column uh in the world's worst newspaper the daily express um the daily express i must say last week uh last wednesday as as Quarting's budget imploded all the lenders were pulling out the cheap mortgage deals the imf were sharpening their pens uh on wednesday no mention of any of this on the front page of the daily express lead story twindemic go and get your jabs uh that was the lead story so also on the front page lifting weights will help you live longer um not the big financial news that was going to make every single daily express reader poorer was it on page two and three of the daily express no uh six pictures of children giving flowers to the princess of wales two uh, i mean only two children uh three three uh three pictures each um quite incredible but what about Anne widdicombe's column in that issue of the daily express uh, she tackled the big issues. She said that uh, it was a disgrace that mince pies were available in the shops already. Um, not that much on the big financial news of the week again, but she did say that budget was spectacular. 
Um, and I suppose you could say it was spectacular in the same way the last flight of the Hindenburg was spectacular. I wouldn't worry too much about the mince pies either. And in a couple of months, uh, none of us will be able to afford them. So that's fine. Matt Withers, who is going in the Hall of Shame for you this week? Well, for what I suspect will be the first of many times, I'm going to send in Jake Berry, who is the new Conservative Party chair or, and this kind of minister for the Today programme, uh, as, as they call it. He gave his first interview since being appointed uh, to, predictably, the Daily Express with a broadside at the people who, quote, don't believe in Britain. He said, if I'm really honest with you, and I think about the collective voices which we've heard doubting the fact that Britain could go for growth, I mean, it really is the same people who opposed Brexit. Those same voices, in fact, in many cases, the exact same people who've gone overnight from being experts on European law to experts in the financial markets saying we can't do this. Well, firstly, it isn't the same people. It's people like Rishi Sunak, who, unlike Liz Truss, campaigned and voted for Brexit. And secondly, the problem isn't the people pontificating on the financial markets who are the problem. It's the financial markets. Um, and it's also worth mentioning, and we can chuck this guy in as well. It's a view echoed by Chris Finodi, the uh, the hedge fund boss who hedge once fund. employed. They, they, this is the big, yeah, the, the big, in every every sense of the word, the big hedge fund boss who once employed the chancellor and uh, who's made a fortune by betting on the pound's demise. Um, having denied that he had any trading advantage because Kwarteng had worked for him, saying it was a mad idea, he blamed the rout of the pound on, quotes, Remainers who hate the government, and it really is that simple. Uh, Ellie, who are you putting in the hall of shame? Um, so first up for me is Daniel Hannan. In a really bizarre exercise of finger pointing this week, he has offered up the theory that the pound is actually crashing because the markets are scared of Keir Starmer. Um, yeah. I know we're now in October, but we're not quite at Halloween yet, but there we go. He's, he's written this in Conservative Home. He says, what we have seen since Friday is a market adjustment to the increased probability that Sergio Starmer will win in 2024 or 2025, leading to higher taxes, higher spending and a weaker economy. So it's all Labour's fault. Case closed. It's a pretty low bar, but his point may have slightly been more convincing if the mini budget hadn't been then followed by mortgage lenders fleeing the market in a panic, a rebuke from the IMF and an emergency statement from the Bank of England, none of which can really be blamed on a potential Labour government. Um, and curiously, you won't actually find any of these things mentioned in the piece. And the thing is with blaming other people, that if you keep making you know, mistake after mistake after mistake, eventually the only place left to point the blame is in the direction of a mirror. Um, and then also going in the Hall of Shame for me this week is the columnist Alison Pearson, in The Telegraph this week, she wrote about how the public has grown tired of Strictly Come Dancing. I mean, first and foremost, I feel like there are other things the public have grown a bit weary of this week, but we'll just leave that to one side. In her piece, she explains how from mismatched same-sex couples to the show's first contestant with dwarfism, it's clear producers value inclusion, in inverted commas, over entertainment. Uh, she continues to say that you can't blame viewers for being turned off or wondering how Paralympic swimming gold medalist Emily Ellie Simmons is going to manage when, and I quote, her head barely comes up to the hip of her partner Nikita Kuzmin. She does continue to say how Simmons is an admirable and amazing person, but then goes on to wonder how she'll manage when it goes from Latin to a waltz. Um, I'm sure Simmons is really grateful for her concern. 
And I think, to be honest, Pravina Rudworth from The New Statesman summed this up best when tweeting that this is just offensive. Mm, yes, I thought she might say that it was all the fault of the uh, woke brigade. Um, I'm going to put another couple uh, in there uh, just at the end because we should remember how this budget was hailed by certain people before it turned out that it was taking us to the brink of disaster. Uh, you mentioned this before, Matt, the Daily Mail I mean, it's still effectively edited by Paul Dacre, who is going to be made a life peer in Boris Johnson's resignation honours list if they let him get away with it. Uh, And that did say on its front page, at last, a true Tory budget, uh, which for all the reasons Matt has just detailed, it isn't a true Tory budget. And Nigel Farage wrote on Twitter, today was the best Conservative budget since 1986, which, I mean, the after effects of 1986, well discussed in this podcast over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, I mean, they said that this budget was all about growth but of course they Nigel Farage and Paul Dacre told us six years ago that Brexit was all about growth and it was going to develop huge growth and opportunity rather than costing us 600 million quid a week in lost growth uh, which is what Goldman Sachs said last year it was doing Um, so it turns out that we have taken back control of our money just to lose control of our money it's another triumph for Brexit Britain um so that was the New European Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, with Eleanor longman Rood, Matt Withers, me, Steve Anglesey. Thanks to uh, you for listening. Thanks to our producer, John Dakin. Uh, a reminder for our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital, £2 a week for print and digital at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, subscribe and you can leave us lovely reviews and nice ratings too, if you like. Uh, Please join our Facebook readers group. Please follow us on Twitter uh, at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter too, at Sanglesey. Until the next time we meet, it is goodbye from Eleanor Longman Rood. Goodbye. And goodbye from the reader, Matt Withers. Farewell. Uh, And from me, it is so long, snowflakes.